Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing, integrative future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with award-winning author and speaker, Jeremy Lent. Described by Guardian journalist George Monbiot as one of the greatest thinkers of our age, Jeremy's work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways towards a life-affirming future. A former internet company CEO with a BA in English Literature from Cambridge University and an MBA from the University of Chicago, Jeremy's life has followed an unexpected path, as we'll come to hear, and he has gone on to write two highly acclaimed books. The first, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, explores the ways humans have made meaning from the cosmos from hunter-gatherer times to the present day. His new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, draws upon science and philosophies to lay out a solid foundation for a worldview of deep interconnectedness. Jeremy is the founder of the Deep Transformation Network, a global community exploring pathways to an ecological civilization, and the non-profit Lyology Institute, dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on the Earth. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation, having read your amazing book, The Web of Meaning. How are you doing today? Oh, doing great. Thanks, Natalie. And yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. Looking forward to this conversation. I've been really excited about this. So I'm, I'm going to start with the question that I like to open these conversations with, which is what do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now? Oh, wow. That is a great question <laughs> to ask. Yeah. Well, I think... My sense is primarily what is going on is this sense of increasing bewilderment and almost getting closer to desperation at the kind of unraveling of uh, um, a world order that's been around really for generations. I think that's the sort of the more general way. And then people are responding to that bewilderment and desperation in different ways, either by getting attracted to right-wing uh, ideas and or um, recognizing there needs to be fundamental changes. And, um, and a lot of them are just uh, basically melting down, having uh, psychological problems and then responding to that in terms of their interactions with people directly. So I feel there's some real unraveling taking place. So it's a, it's a mm. scary time, but it's also a time of opening up to other possibilities. And actually, these are the, sort of some of the deeper themes that you address in both books that are award-winning books that if, if you're listening and you haven't come across these, I highly recommend you dive into them. The first one, The Patterning Instinct, which came out in 2017, and your most recent, 
The Web of Meaning that came out last year that I've just finished reading. What mm. moved you to write these books? Was it this sense of this unravelling and our inability really to have a resilient system that could respond effectively to these challenges we face? Or was it something else? Like In my case, it was really, um, it was internally driven, actually. It was really, honestly, in response to my own internal unraveling, if you will, that occurred. And with me, it didn't even feel like an unraveling, it felt more like a meltdown. In my life, about halfway through my sort of midlife crisis, I guess you, you could sort of call it. But it was really about 15 years ago or so when I had built a life around uh, starting a company, taking it public, and, and then everything kind of crashed around me. And because of that, I did a lot of searching for what was truly meaningful. And really, these two books, both The Patterning Instinct, which is more a historical book, and The Web of Meaning, which looks more like philosophically and like a different kind of worldview, really came as a result of my own search for meaning, for something that I could truly believe in with my sort of body and mind all together. Um, so it was really, as I was doing my own searching, I realized there's something to be shared here, something that it felt part of the meaning itself was to actually share that with others. Mm. And so, I mean, these are very complex, beautifully written, attentively written, thoughtful books that weave in information and stories and ideas from a variety of different traditions. So as someone who's written two books myself, I know, and nothing quite this long, I know <laughs> how... Um, complex and challenging and how much attention it requires and depth like it's a lot of work mm. um what were the things that that kept you going i mean there's clearly a joy that i at least feel when i read this book that there's there's a care with which you've written it that speaks to me of the sense of meaning and purpose in, in creating it but what was it that kept you going with the book when you're kind of coming up against these very difficult ideas to synthesize into some sort of whole that a reader like me can go ah i follow you yeah, yeah. Well, really for me, writing both those books was a total joy. I mean, it was really this sense of what a gift that I'm able to actually um, put these ideas out there and they might even get heard, like, in the world by others. And in the the first book I wrote, I actually almost completed it. Well, I, 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 I had completed it before I even started to look for publishers. So it was a kind of, it was a book written <laughs> on faith, if you will, that maybe it might get read by others in the world in the future. And mm -hmm. with the second book, The Web of Meaning, it was a different experience because I already had a publisher lined up and there was a sense of, God, what an opportunity to share these ideas with the world and knowing that at least some people will read them. So it was more than anything, I think, one of the challenges for me was because I don't come from an academic background. Um, you know, I have an undergraduate, and but then I, I really came to these to the research and writing, not from a strong sort of academic discipline, which really enabled me to write these books because mm. it was very interdisciplinary, which no professional academic could ever get away with. Okay. But in my case, <laughs> what was really critical was I really wanted my ideas to be taken seriously at the level of real scientific rigor. So I spent a huge amount of time and making sure every, almost like every paragraph had footnotes to back it up. And I wanted yeah. to be really, really rigorous. So that, and that was a ton of my energy got spent, not just in putting these ideas out, but trying to make sure that not a single statement was made without feeling like I could truly back it up 
with something serious underneath it. And you can really tell. I mean, it's it's clearly written with that with that weight and all the footnotes and then the glossary as well. So all these terms that people may not be familiar with, you really guide right. the reader into these different avenues. And so given that the central theme of this season of the podcast is around integration, which mm. connects beautifully to your book, The Web of Meaning, and the unifying framework that you offer, I'd like to ask you, how do you conceive of integration, first and foremost? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. That's a key, key concept, um, especially in this more recent book, The Web of Meaning. Um, and in simple terms, I see integration uh, basically as being like unity with differentiation. And sometimes I'll actually add unity with differentiation and balance, mm. um, because I feel that's another central aspect of of what integration is. And the reason I feel it's such a key concept is um, a lot of this um, more recent book really looks at life itself as a source of values, um, as a source of meaning and, and inspiration, um, because we are all part of life. And when you study, when you look at what and is it in entailed in life from a scientific perspective? What you find is integration is absolutely key and core from the single cell all the way to an ecosystem, all the way to the whole of Gaia. Um, integration is really um, a sign of health, uh, which is something that um, then um, interpersonal neurobiologist Dan Siegel, I think I quote him in the book at one point, yeah. talking about <laughs> integration itself being exactly a, a almost definition of good of health and flourishing. Wait, that's so funny that you said that because that was one of the quotes that I pulled out here to um, to quote. I'm going to see if I can find it actually. So you describe it as a definition of good health mm -hmm. as it allows us to live in quotes in a flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable flow across time, um, which is a very interesting way of conceiving of it. And so when we're thinking about integration and thinking about the different ways in which we experience and perceive the world, one of the things, one of the lenses that you use to examine this question of life and our connection and relationship to it is the Tao Te Ching. Um, and you write that animals and plants and other living beings act accordingly according to their duh <laughs> in an effortless action known as Wu Wei. And I'm going to ask you about these terms in a moment. And humans, on the other hand, have developed more kind of purposeful, maybe linear or goal-oriented way of being known as the U-way, which you describe as being connected to the executive functions afforded by our prefrontal cortex. So can you tell us a little bit what those things are? Because it's such an interesting point that you make, and it's something which is outside of many of Western culture's sort of parameters. So what is that? <laughs> yeah, I, this is really key. And it's a big um, sort of theme that I begin the book with. And what it, partly what it is, is it's a way of examining some preconceptions we have in the in our dominant worldview that have been shown really by both um, neuroscience and uh, traditional wisdom to be kind of wrong, basically. And it really comes down to a sense of our human identity and a sense of what it is to be human and also a sense of what intelligence is, which is oftentimes a um, misconceived concept around that. So basically, our human identity, if you, if you ask somebody just kind of walking down the street who, you know, just in the world today, what is, what is our human identity? It's quite likely that whatever answer they give will be based ultimately on this great statement from Descartes, right, from hundreds of years ago, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum. There's a sense that our very human identity arises 
from our sort of conceptual consciousness, our thinking capability. And that is um, absolutely a part of what differentiates humans from other animals and other sentient beings. But what modern neuroscience has come to show us, and this is what's so fascinating, is that it ties back to what the ancient Taoists talked about, is that really as human beings, we're not just that conceptual thinking, I think, therefore I am, but we're embodied. Um, And in fact, our bodies themselves and all living beings have not just consciousness, what I call animate consciousness in the book, but deep intelligence. Uh, You know, and I give that term animate intelligence. So I explore this Taoist ideas because they got that sense right from the outset. And as you say, like they, they had this word de, like which is just uh, spelled T-E in English transliteration, which basically refers to the sort of intrinsic nature of things, the, the innate power that every living sentient being has. And they saw trees having dir and animals having dir and anything that was alive. And in fact, that the name of that great classic, the Tao Te Ching, has that in the title. It basically mm-hmm. translates as the classic of Tao and Der. And Tao means like the way, the way in which nature manifests in the world. And Der is like this nature of things. And what they saw, this concept of Wu Wei was so important because they saw all living beings acting in this kind of flow, really, with the rest of life. Um, and in harmony with whatever, essentially being fully integrated was one way you could you could look at it. Um, and they call that Wu Wei. But like the point was the humans didn't act in Wu Wei. They acted in ways that almost like went against the grain of things. Um, but what's interesting about that is that that is really the fundamental of our of what civilization is. So they talked about this U way, this purpose of action is things like um, trying to drive water up a hill or, or, and and of course that's what, that's what the steam engine was, you know, like really our modern world is all about U way. And that's kind of leads to a whole exploration of what it is uh, really our, our entire identity as human beings and also our relationship with life itself. Like we're both, um, part of life because we are embodied and there's something unique about our human activities that causes us to act on the rest of non-human nature in ways that may be to our benefit sometimes but also can lead to imbalances so it kind of gets foundational to the condition we're looking at in the world right now and so when we're talking about animate consciousness and conceptual consciousness how do these show up, say, for instance, in someone's daily life? And how can we find harmony between these different elements or ways of being? Yeah, well, in a daily life, because in the dominant worldview, we're told um, right from early childhood that our real identity is just that thinking capability, we tend to only be aware of that nonstop sort of buzzing, talking like um, sort of voice yeah. in our head that says, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I should be doing this, like what's coming next, like our sort of thinking capability. And so we tend to be very disconnected from a truly integrated sense of who we are. I Sometimes I um, say like what our human identity truly is, is like an integrated human mind-body organism, if you will. Um, like, And so the mind is, and the, the conscious mind uh, is one aspect of that, but it's not the full aspect of that. Um, a lot of the time, people will get driven to be curious because they'll feel a sense of 
just unhappiness in that thinking mind all the time, feel maybe like uncomfortable or always striving or never feeling fully just being able to relax. Mm -hmm. So there are real very powerful ways we can start to approach a more integrated um, experience of our lives. One is through things like mindfulness meditation. Another one that's been deeply meaningful for me has been embodied traditional Chinese practices like Qigong or mm. Tai Chi. And oftentimes people will find dance or other embodied practices as ways, ways to connect with their bodies. But most importantly, and th there's, a, there's a subtle difference here, even when we connect with our bodies, oftentimes we're still doing it from the core sense of our human identity being our mind. So it's like, even I can sit in mindfulness meditation and say, I'm aware of my body, or I'm aware of this or that impulse. But it's still as though I am this thinking mind that's aware of it. And what I find so valuable about other more embodied practices is you can begin to shift your identity itself. And you begin to realize that, oh, actually, part of me is the body, recognizing that um, the body has a mind rather than the other way around. So for me, that's been a, f a big shift in my own awareness of my lived experience in the last, say, 15 years of my own life. And I love that phrase that you just used, the body has a mind. Right. <laughs> It's so fascinating. Um, and actually, speaking about the way that we conceive of ourselves and our identity, one of the chapters I found most compelling was the one that explores the relationship between the I and the self and how these split apart. Can you talk a little bit about what this idea is and how it can bring us into conflict, which you've kind of touched on there, but let's dig a bit deeper. Yes, that is so fascinating. And, and really, this kind of follows on from the very thing we were just discussing about that recognition that as humans, we have both an animate and a conceptual consciousness or intelligence. And what is so fascinating is as humans, um, because we do have this highly developed conceptual way of thinking, one of the ways in which that shows itself is what um, psychologists uh, or cognitive neuroscientists call like um, self-awareness, that we're aware of ourselves as a separate self. Um, and in fact, they even can test that on, on animals. They call it the mirror test, where like if, you know, for a kid, once you hit about three or four years old um, and a toddler can look at themselves in the mirror and recognize it's them. When you're a, a, a six-month-old baby, you can't even do that. You just see your face. And most animals are not, if they see themselves in the mirror, they don't realize it's them. They might even, you know, attack the, the image or whatever. But some animals do. For example, chimpanzees or or elephants or um, others. So this is self-awareness that we as humans developed. And that has led to uh, basically a split consciousness where we have in uh, normal language terms, we can call it an I and the self. And you can just get the sense of this when you just talk about normal things in regular everyday language without even having to think about it. Like, so if I'm telling you about um, an uh, evening I had with some friend yesterday and I say oh she gave me a warm smile you know that gives you a sense of how um we're uh sort of using metaphors to understand how I'm relating to somebody and I can say that about myself I can say to you I'm I'm feeling really bad about myself I'm really hard on myself and you know what I mean and I don't have to explain to you the sort of uh, you know you might ask me why but you can get that but who is the I and who is the self and so when we 
explore that more, we begin to realize that the I is part of that conceptual consciousness that basically develops as we get to um, uh, to be go to like age three, four, five and above. And the self is more like that animate consciousness, that moment to moment expression of what we're actually feeling, just impulses, the sense of basically our core animate being with needs, simple needs often. And that relationship between the I and the self, I call it in my book, the most important relationship in your life, because it's one that you'll have as long as you're alive till your last (laughs) breath, basically. And we can choose to actually conduct that relationship in a way that leads to a kind of um, warmth and internal kindness in that relationship, which can fundamentally shift the quality of our lived experience. Or if we sort of allow what our dominant culture puts on us, we can often find ourselves in very difficult relationships with ourselves and Mm -hmm. live according to like, you know, a lot of harshness in there and judgment of ourselves and things that make life pretty difficult from day to day. So there's a lot we can do about that relationship once we identify it. It's so fascinating. So my background's in psychology and behavioral science. And so anything that unpacks the ways in which we understand ourselves is something I'm naturally very drawn to. And one of the things that you write about as well, which I felt connected with this, was the functions of the left and right hemispheres of the brain as interpreter and mystic, which is a beautiful poetic way of putting it, and how each half experiences and organises reality differently. Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe the example of the, the lady who had a stroke and her experience? Yes, that's right. Uh, Gillian Bolte-Taylor was the woman who had a stroke. And um, this is so fascinating because one of the things is that we see, we talked earlier about these Taoist ideas of Wu Wei and Yu Wei and these different um, ways of being. And what I find so fascinating is when modern cognitive neuroscience um, validates what they deeply understood, um, but shows it from a, a scientific point of view. So from modern um, neuroscience, we discover about the right and left brain, which, um, again, maps very closely onto <clears throat> this I and the self. And the left brain is, like you say, the interpreter. Um, and the one that very much is like looking at the story of our lives and saying, I intend to do this and something happens and it tries to make sense of it. And the right brain is actually more like the, um, where our animate intelligence or our animate consciousness is housed. And the right brain, uh, scientists have discovered, is much more able to sort of see things in a unified wholeness and is more like, and it, it gives a more aesthetic and intuitive relation to things. Um, and in a well-balanced, integrated human being, those two work together. But there's also sort of some conflict between them. And what is fascinating, of course, is we, it's very difficult for us to know what it's like to just be the right brain or just be, well, (laughs) most of us have a good sense of what it is to just be the left brain because that tends to be (laughs) dominant in our society. So that's easy enough. But the fascinating story is Jill Bolte-Taylor, who is actually, of all things, a leading cognitive neuroscientist at Harvard, um, where she was doing research on exactly this stuff. So she understood all this totally so well. And one day she had a stroke, a really debilitating stroke um, at home in the morning. And basically what it did is it um, essentially stopped her entire left hemisphere of her brain from functioning. So all of a sudden she became just a right-brained person. 
And the fascinating story, uh, the, the wonderful thing is this kind of a good outcome to the story, partly because of her mother who worked so closely with her and her own way of working with these issues. She actually, uh, she went through very difficult times, but she over some months and years recovered from the stroke. And so she was able to actually report back what her experience was. And what is fascinating, she she wrote this book called My Stroke of Insights. And um, when she was just the right brain, rather than being terrified, like, oh, my God, I've just had a stroke, I might die, my world is ending all around me. She actually had this sense of this luminous presence, this sense of this oneness, the sense of everything is perfect and beautiful in the world. And her whole sense of identity expanded to like feel like she's become all of life and the whole universe. And this was not, you know, if it's one thing, if we hear some new age mystic writing about it, okay, sure, that's what they want to tell us. But here was this hardcore, scientifically trained person having this totally different experience and then getting to write about it and explaining it from that neuroscientific point of view, which is why her story is so amazing um, and really helps us to understand these are not just made up ideas. This is, this is truly what's going on deep in our own, in each of our own psyches. Mm. Well, it's just such a powerful example of what that actually means in real terms, subjective terms, when you're actually waking up in a situation where, you know, one side of the brain just isn't online, so to speak, anymore. And another aspect of, of what you write about, and I love this turn of phrase, was that we have a democracy of consciousness. I definitely feel that. I feel like I've got an orchestra that lives in my head and every now and again they're kind of all in symphony together. And other times it's like, oh, the violin's soloing now and then it's like the timpani and the horn. But so so this way of kind of embracing these different qualities, the I, the self, the different drivers that want different things, it's a very generous framework with which to understand and accept and come into conversation with ourselves. So I'm wondering from that perspective, when we think about a democracy of selves and we think about the web of life to which we belong, what does this perspective mean to the way that we experience our sense of connection to ourselves, our various different selves, and the wider living world that we inhabit? Yeah, wonderful question. Thank you for that. It's, <laughs> I, I think that it might be helpful to begin first with how we relate to all those different selves within us. Mm. I use the term democracy of consciousness, which gives the sense that we have different parts that sometimes one part might be dominant, sometimes other parts might be dominant. And in a true democracy, which sadly is very different for the quasi-democracies we're told we have in places like the US or in the UK or whatever that might be. But in a, in a real well-functioning democracy, it's not just a matter of the majority winning out. And if there's 51% of yourself is doing this, you just ride roughshod over the rest. But there's a sense of honoring and recognizing the authentic voices within all the different parts of you. And you might sometimes have to make a majority decision kind of thing. Say, okay, I'm going to, you have to make a call. I'm going to choose this, not that. But then there's a way you can do it where you can allow all the different parts to be heard. So when all of you makes a decision, it's, it's not like you are, it's not like a tyranny where you're refusing to allow parts to be heard, but you're actually um, bringing them all into a full uh, full discussion within yourself before you uh, choose a path. And there's a wonderful modality I've only come across more recently, which I feel is a skillful way to get at this, which is known as internal family systems, which is this whole um, 
a process of basically identifying all these different parts within yourself. And what I feel is fundamental is honoring and embracing them all mm. with kindness. And that's where where I sort of go in, in that discussion is that to, I mean, ultimately all of us wants to live life with a sense of true, deep well-being within us. That I think is fundamental to every one of us. And oftentimes we get waylaid and so sort of go down the wrong path, but there's always that desire. And to my understanding, the way we can do that is by looking for all those parts of ourselves, being curious and bringing them into full um, conscious awareness, loving each part, even those parts that we're uh, socialized to say, this is a bad part and I should rise above that. But rather than try to leave it behind, we can actually look at it, understand where it might have come from, how it might have uh, grown up um, in early times in our lives to defend us in one way or another against trauma. Mm-hmm. And then by recognizing that, we can, to the initial concept you talked about earlier, integrate that so it's really a full part of who we are. And you're asking about how we relate to the rest of the world. And I feel like it helps to begin by looking at how we can relate to ourselves. Because if we're doing that within ourselves, we basically develop, you almost like think of them as like developing muscles, like the the neural pathways that allow that can then get turned outward and can apply to other people, other people close within us, like family or loved ones, or even people that we might find ourselves absolutely antagonistic to, people with politically very different opinions, people who seem to be coming from places we just fundamentally disagree with. But once we've developed this ability to look at all those parts, we can look at those parts within others and begin to see, yeah, well, I don't agree with that person. And they seem to have gotten waylaid and stuck in a a place that is, you know, maybe expressing a lot of anger and hate or whatever. But then we can begin to realize, well, they're probably um, having the same the same difficult things that they're expressing outwardly, they're probably expressing to themselves inwardly, maybe even more so, which allows us to feel compassion for those that we don't agree with, even if we don't necessarily have to then allow them to have their way. But we can, we can approach all of this with a sense of a kind of a more unconditional love underlying our way of relating. I love that. And seeing oneself and one's own suffering as connected to the self and suffering of others. And one of the things that that you write about in terms of the fractures, which I think show up when you have people of very different opinions, in my mind, I think of people who are very staunch and brittle as having an inflexibility, probably because there's something they're protecting or defending against. And so this kind of leads me to this question of balance between hedonia and eudaimonia. So the hedonia, the the pleasure-seeking, pain avoidance, I want to get my dopamine fixed now, I want to feel... Um, happy or thrilled as opposed to bored or afraid or anxious versus the more perhaps slow-moving eudaimonic sense of flourishing through living according to one's sense of potential or values. And so this is something you also touched on in the book, uh, this kind of tension between hedonia and eudaimonia. What are the biggest blocks you think that stand in our way of creating or cultivating a more eudaimonic culture? I think that's a key, key question. For anyone who isn't sure about that, what that distinction is, it actually comes from uh, all the way back from Aristotle, um, which is interesting in a way because um, a lot of the 
the ancient Greek ideas ended up with this kind of dualistic split way of mm-hmm. thinking that I kind of I, I critique a lot and look to East Asian ideas for deeper, more integrated ways of relating to ourselves. But to his great credit, Aristotle was the one who most clearly identified this distinction uh, between eudaimonia and hedonia in terms of really what humans are looking for. So in simple terms, the, the sort of hedonic way of living is not necessarily bad in itself, but it is look, looking to um, meet particular needs we have, whether it's needs for like the word hed- um, hedonic in modern times, like sort of pleasure seeking, but also things like we want to feel attractive to people. We want to um, have high status and have people respect us. We want to feel a sense of um, financial security or physical security. All those are part of hedonic needs, which are not necessarily bad to pursue. But what Aristotle showed is that by pursuing those, we don't actually get to a true sense of well-being in itself. And his concept of eudaimonia was something that applied in his mind to every Animal. In fact, I, I often think if Aristotle um, could have suddenly taken a flight over to East Asia and hung out with some of the Taoists, they'd have got along just fine because really his notion of eudaimonia is a lot like that Taoist notion of, uh, of the duh each living creature has. It's the sense of every living being from a plant to an animal to a human being wants to fulfill its true nature, wants to be able to fulfill what it was evolved essentially to become. And he said, that's what eudaimonia is, is like living your life according to its fullness of its potential. And interestingly, Buddhism makes a similar distinction between um, dukkha, which is this notion um, oftentimes translated as suffering, but it's more like that hedonic need to meet a need. And like, um, and as soon as you realize you've got something, you're dissatisfied because you need the next thing. Mm. So there's dukkha and they have an opposite notion of sukha, which is this kind of deep well-being, like an abiding sense of everything being just fine, um, which relates a lot to eudaimonia. So you see these ideas in both Western and Eastern ways of thinking. And I think to your so to your question, what sort of blocks us from uh, moving towards that eudaimonia? Well, partly it is some there is something intrinsic to our human condition that split self we talked about earlier does make it uh, a bit of a challenge for humans to really fulfill who they are in that integrated way because that left hemisphere tends to get in the way of um, our real of just being more like uh, Jill Balti-Taylor had that sense of this mystic oneness. But it's become, it's been made a lot more difficult by our dominant culture. Because basically, our dominant culture of consumerism has essentially been developed specifically to elevate those hedonic needs rather than the eudaimonic needs. And everything around us um, is uh, from advertising to our entire society, to the, the, the values that we live our lives according to, to what our media tells us, to what celebrities are doing. Everything is built around actually exacerbating those hedonic tendencies and making us feel, oh, I need to be, I need to earn more money or I need to have that next tech gadget or I need to have 
a, a fancier car, or I need to have more status, or look at the picture somebody else just put on Instagram. I need to look even more like I'm having more fun than they are. Every element of that is all around our hedonic needs. So it's it gets to be even more challenging to kind of uh, calm things down and quiet mm-hmm. that noise because of the these corporations driven to basically maximize their profits for shareholders. They are literally, consciously, and cynically manipulating our minds through media to tell us that all we are is these hedonic needs and we need to buy this or do that to satisfy them. So there's a lot of like pressure in our society today to take us away from eudaimonia. Because honestly, if we were living life more eudaimonically, we'd have less need to go buy the stuff and uh, it wouldn't be so good for the corporation's bottom lines if people actually already had a sense of satisfaction and well-being. So that's a lot of what we need to look about. And a real liberation can arise once we begin to realize that and get off what is known um, in some, uh, some people write about the hedonic treadmill, because it's like this treadmill we're on, which the faster we try to run on it, the faster it moves and makes us sprint even more fast. Mm. It's tricky, isn't it? I think it's one of these things where... If you have the good fortune to have a sense of community and you go out for an evening with friends and you forget about checking your phone and you're not looking in the mirror and you're just having a nice evening or you're sitting around a fire, you know, there's that kind of that sense of deep well-being that one can get that feels quite rare in many of our lives. Certainly for me, it's, it's something which I hunt out and I make space for during the week because it's just not in the fabric of the rest of my week unless we weave it in. But um. One of the things I really want to talk with you about is a topic that can be quite frightening when we're thinking about shifting civilizations, shifting the priorities that that we aim for in society. And so thinking about things like tipping points or collapse, which I know a lot of people speak about on you know podcasts that explore these sorts of topics. One of the things that comes up a lot when we talk about natural systems and life cycles is this concept of phase transition that enables entirely new set of emergent coherence to come about. Um, so, for instance, I was listening to the third of a set of interviews between Daniel Schmachtenberger and Nate Hegel. I think it's Nate Hegel on this podcast called The Great Simplification. Fascinating conversations. And the one that's titled Ben Not Break sense-making, uncertainty and purpose, they describe beautifully this example of a phase transition for a chicken that's in, well, a chick that's in an egg and hasn't yet hatched. And it says, you know, if we were in that egg and we were thinking, oh my God, we're about to run out of egg white, which is our source of nourishment, and we're pooping in the egg and we're going to die, we probably panic a lot. And yet evolution is such that the egg white runs out at just the time when you know, the chick's digestive tract is strong enough to be able to process new food, its beak is strong enough to break out of the egg, and then it is able, in most cases, to break out and then live a different life as a hatched chicken. And so there's this kind of question around phase transition. What do you think we need in order to get to the point where we can make these sorts of phase transitions? Is that even 
the right question if we're thinking about phase transition. How do you conceive of it? How do we get there? Yes, and and, and when you're asking about how we get there, you asking in terms of we as a society or individually uh, relating to that? I guess right? both. both. <laughs> Where yeah, you right, would exactly. like to start. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so <entangled>. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do think, um, I think phase transitions is a very, very powerful way to understand uh, where we're at right now, basically, in our society. Um, And in fact, that's one of the things I explore in some detail in that book, The Web of Meaning, is realizing that um, using um, systems language and systems ways of um, sort of framework to understand our society and to understand life in general is one of the most profound breakthroughs, really, that modern science has given us and really important. And so there's a lot to um, a, a sort of unpack around that. But the, the basic concept behind a phase transition is that systems can be coherent for quite a long time. But then it's in the really the nature of all living systems that at certain points, either because of outside variables or things that are changing inside, it does come to exactly that kind of phase transition, like the chick breaking out of the egg. And then it breaks through to another. And oftentimes those phase transitions can be negative things. Like when Jill Bolte-Taylor had that stroke, that's a phase transition where all of a sudden the ways in which the neurons, the neuronal relationships in her brain shifted and 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 that can be devastating or it can be creative and birth or a a chicken hatching. That's an archetypal example of how that phase transition can be positive. So the question is, what are we going right now in our society? And I think um, when people do look at collapse um, and the increasing potential for that, I think there's a lot of validity to that um, analysis. Uh, it doesn't mean that I think that that is inevitable, the, the collapse is inevitable in our, in our century right now that we're looking at. But I think we can recognize pretty much everyone who looks at this deeply agrees that, the, that what we are undergoing this century in the world, is a phase transition. Mm. And when you will look back at history overall, there's only been a couple of really major phase transitions in the human experience, which affected every aspect of the human experience. One was when we went from nomadic hunter-gatherers to settle down in agriculture. And then everything shifted. It might it took, in some places, hundreds, even thousands of years for that shift to happen. But when it did, the entire way of life, values, what you did with your life, your physical health, everything was different. Similarly, with the scientific revolution in Europe, a few hundred years ago, there was this phase transition where everything uh, got to be different as a, on account of it, which is the modern world we're in right now. We can be sure we're undergoing a phase transition like that this century. So the real question becomes, what is it to? Collapse is more like um, having a stroke. It's like more like everything and just, yes, things would look very different. Most people um, in the collapse scenario would end up not even surviving. It would be the greatest devastating uh, holocaust to happen in all of human history, a terrible situation that we want to avoid at all costs. What are the other options? Another is a possible bifurcation of the human species, which I feel sometimes some of the elites are almost uh, expecting or preparing for. It is almost the idea of um, that some humans break out into a different kind of post-transhuman future being genetically enhanced and all the rest of it and leave the rest of us 
um, the Weltbanker people to engage in that collapse. But the question is, and to me, this is basically where I feel it's worth all of us to spend all of our time and our, in our lives working on. There's a possibility of a phase transition to a different kind of future. One that would be based on a different system. The system of global capitalism right now is what has brought us to this point of collapse. Can we move towards a future of true human flourishing? One where we can actually be more stable and have a, a, um, a regenerative relationship with the earth and, and with each other. Is that possible? I believe it's possible. But I feel like to get there, we have to, we are going to have to undergo a lot of this unraveling and this terrifying sort of breakdown in the order that we have gotten used to before something new comes in, just like the chick breaking out of the egg. Yeah, I worry about that because it feels like the speed at which it's happening. And when I say it, I mean things like the war in Ukraine, the flooding, the droughts, the fires. Uh, the loss of grain, the fossil fuel that's running out, the fracking that's happening to be able to sustain our energy requirements in much of the developed world. Also, I'm reading a lot more about it. So there is that kind of bias that's within this that I'm seeking out that information. But it feels as though it's ramping up and speeding up. And that's quite frightening. But one of the things I would love, is it all right for me to read one of the paragraphs from the end of your book? Sure. And this is about um, talking about an ecological civilization. I really wanted to just include this because it really is very moving. So you say, above all, an ecological civilization would be based on an all-encompassing symbiosis between human society and the natural world. Human activity would be organized not merely to avoid harm to the living earth, but to actively regenerate and sustain its health. As such, an ecological civilization could set humanity and non-human nature on a course for an indefinitely prolonged period of mutual flourishing, the symbiocene. Our species, recognising the critical role that we have been granted as Gaia's instrument of self-reflection, could then embark on the learning required for the deep integration with the rest of our planet's cohabitants, from which a truly planetary intelligence might ultimately emerge. I mean... That's what we're aiming for, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank written. you. And that 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 vision is, um, I mean, it's not like just my personal vision. It's one that so many people share, that sense there is something possible um, that is totally available um, in our human relationship with ourselves uh, and with the living earth, that if we can give birth to it, then it's just the 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 potential is so amazing. This recognition that we can live symbiotically with the earth uh, and we don't have to be in this kind of, like right now we're living in a way with the earth where we're basically consuming it in an unsustainable way. Mm. This kind of um, period, the Anthropocene where we're in right now is inherently um, not just unsustainable, it's it's destructive. Um, it leads to, you know, we've been talking a lot about integration earlier. It leads to a disintegration. Basically, rather than integration, and um, it's humans disintegrating the world. Like when they take, for example, a beautiful ecosystem and, and chop it down to create a monoculture of um, palm oil plantations or whatever. Um, that is an example of taking nature's integration and and re re basically de de devastating it. And we're doing that with every aspect of our lives right now. The possibility exists, though, to go to this 
I, I love that term, the symbiocene. That's a term that the environmental philosopher Glenn Albrecht came up with. And I just feel it captures what is possible. It's a true long-term period that um, where we connect, you know, people sometimes, um, oftentimes where I come from in Silicon Valley, um, they can be very focused on these kind of techno opportunities, the sense of humans can go out to the stars and we can mm-hmm. um, become part of galactic civilizations and all the rest of it. Um, and right now, I feel if humans did develop that technology to be able to do that, it would be devastating in just the same way that um, where, as we develop technologies on this earth, we've used it to destroy other creatures that we share the earth with, make them extinct or like almost extinct and just devastate them and torture them the way we do in factory farms and things like that. There's no reason why we wouldn't do the same thing to other wonderful beings out there in the universe if we had this power without developing more of a moral conscience, basically evolving to a different level of awareness of our identity, of being one with all, not just all life, but all any other living sentient beings anywhere in the universe. And that's where I feel the notion of a symbiocene is so powerful, because it gives a great vision of what is actually possible if we can get through these terrifying times right now and move towards a different path. You paint such a powerful vision of what we stand to lose and what we stand to gain if we orient ourselves in a different way. So we're coming towards the end of our conversation. I'd love to ask what tools or practices have been invaluable to you in making the step change, perhaps in your life that you mentioned towards the beginning of our conversation, or towards creating the sense of connection to the living world that kind of enables you to reach out through what I imagine is probably some considerable grief for what we're doing into action and into deep relation. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking that. And really, a lot of what we have been discussing in the last hour have been um, practices that have been absolutely fundamental, crucial to me in my life. I talked about how I started to do the research that led to these books when I went through my own sort of personal meltdown um, about 15 uh, years ago or so. Um, And it was actually then that I, for example, discovered meditation. Um, Up until then in my life, I had no clue what meditation was. It just (laughs) some sort of mystic space people get into or whatever. I I was clueless (laughs) about it. And when I first discovered it, I couldn't believe this realization of like, oh, wow, what a, like, as if there was this possibility, the space within me that had been waiting to be discovered all these years and never was there. Um, and I kind of vowed at the time, I'm never going to lose this. This is, a, and I haven't, you know, it's um, meditation or sitting meditation has been a practice of mine ever since. Similarly, when I first discovered um, Qigong, that's a Chinese movement practice, again, it felt like, oh, I was coming home into my body in a way that was truly meaningful. And I think um, that practice I've talked about earlier of being kind to all the different parts of ourselves, embracing them all, allowing them all uh, to be honored and have a place in who we are as a whole person. To me, that's been absolutely crucial for a sense of eudaimonia and for a sense of facing the incredible devastation that's going on in the world right now. I mean, part of what um, the book, The Web of Meaning, is about is 
looking a lot at identity and this possibility of expansion of identity and going out beyond just our individual selves and beyond even our identity as community um, and even beyond our identity as all of humanity to become all of life um, and realize that each of us is life and life is within us and we're part of this unfolding miracle of life. But once we discover, once we realize that and truly feel it, it's not just liberating, it's also devastating because we get to see life is under attack from our dominant civilization right now. And it's really, it's being tortured and it's being uh, devastated. So once we see that and our identity expands to that, it's no longer just this kind of like, oh dear, I should do something about it. But we're like impelled to do something about it because it comes from within us. But along with that is how do you hold the enormity of what is going on in the world right now. It's a vast thing to hold. And I feel we, that can only be held uh, really with a, a couple of approaches that are necessary for all of us. One is to share it with others. This is way too big. It's too massive for any of us to hold alone. And one of the great gifts we have as human beings is the ability to actually gain in a mutually symbiotic way from community. So by sharing our concerns with others, loved ones who also share them, we're not like, it's not as if I my bad thing becomes your bad thing, but together we can actually nurture each other. So that's, I feel, is one hugely important thing is to be with community around it. A second equally important thing is to move towards engagement. Because as soon as we start to realize um, none of us by ourselves are going to actually change the world in a, in, a, in a way that we can actually see and measure. It's like that's too vast. But once we connect with others and connect in an intentional and engaged way to make a difference, then we can feel empowered. We can feel this is, a, you know, I'm actually part of working towards something that's possible. And a big part of my own challenge has been to basically let go of being too attached to the outcome. Because if we get too attached to the outcome, ultimately we can just look at what's going on and say, it's hopeless or um, or feel. Again, that can be a part. It's a part within me. It's a part many of us have. This sense of like, oh my God, it's just, just leading to despair. But again, we can hold that um, and that we can allow that to be part of something bigger, which is this realization that what life is calling on each of us is to do everything that we can for its own flourishing into the future. And none of us can know what that means. None of us can know what it's about. But we do know each day that we have this opportunity Opportunity to take these living energies within us and put it towards something that is life-affirming. That's something we can know and that's something that we can truly have faith in. Jeremy, thank you so much. Um, if people want to find out more about your fantastic work and your books and the course actually that you have, where are the best places to find those? Oh, yeah, well, thanks. Um, well, the, the simplest way to find out of my work is just to check out my website, which is easy to find. It's just jeremylent.com, or one word. But uh, one way that I would also strongly urge people, if they're interested in these themes, to connect with me and others on, on these themes is um, a wonderful 
online uh, global network that I helped to initiate just this year, which now has thousands of people from around the world joining it, engaging in these conversations um, each day, all the time in real time and um, asynchronously. Um, and it's called the Deep Transformation Network. And you can find that very easily. Just you go to uh, deeptransformation.network and you can just sign up um, to join. And just being part of these conversations with people who care about what's going on and want to be part of trying to move towards that transformation that is actually possible. Brilliant. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was really very moving and inspiring and just what I needed. <laughs> thank you, Natalie. Oh, thank you. Really just great to be in conversation with you. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and a review as it helps to reach new ears. For more information, you can visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. You can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.